There's a ghost town in southeast Iowa, known as one of the largest blasting powder operations in the world. Come with me now as we explore the history and stories of Moore, Iowa, better known as Powder Town. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of Midwest Ghost Town. This is Dan. I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town adventurer and storyteller. It's good to be back rebooting Midwest Ghost Town. For some of you that have been following along, thank you. And we'll carry on where we left off. For those of you who are new, we cover the history and stories of ghost towns and abandoned places. And of course, as the title suggests, we do spend a lot of time in the Midwest. Born and raised in the northwest corner of Iowa, I cover a lot of ground from North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, and further around the Midwest states. However, as some of you might have picked up on, and if not, that's okay, we do cover sites outside the Midwest, including all of the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and overseas to other parts of the world. Ghost towns are a fascinating part of our history. They offer a story to tell, not just because they look cool or have this eerie presence about them, but because of the lives that once lived there. The stories that are in the broken and decaying skeletons of old homes, churches, schools, and other buildings. Falling ruins. And here's the next thing, that we often get this fantasy illusion of what we think a ghost town is, or looks like, and are sadly mistaken. The movies have played a significant role in this, painting a picture of the old western town abandoned on the big screen with tumbleweed passing by on the old dirt main street, or we have a picture of a boomer bus mining town in our head, which do and still exist in a lot of different areas in the Rockies and western parts of the United States. We also have some ghost town sites where the towns are gone. We're only left with a few reminders of its past and historical markers, and in most cases, a lonely cemetery left behind to mark where the town once stood. In the Midwest especially, a lot of the sites have long been plowed under and raised for farmland, or given way to waterways that mark the tributaries of the mighty Midwest rivers themselves, like the Missouri, Ohio, and the Mississippi. We give these ghost towns different classifications on what is left, and we'll make room for this in another podcast and talk about that classification system, but today, we run into another Midwest ghost town story that begs our attention. Before I start diving deep into this episode, I just want to put out a disclaimer and warning. This episode gets a little more violent and graphic due to some of this historical accounts that happened in history. Some pretty gruesome stuff with the explosions and deaths, so wanted to put that out there for a warning. So this is a story that reeled me back into doing the podcast. Because as I took a three-month rest on the topic, there were countless friends, family, that reached out to me on different sites that I covered. And quite frankly, it was overwhelming. I would do the research as well as hold a YouTube channel with scripting, filming, editing. And now I host this weekly podcast, which started at Spotify and now open to wherever you get your podcast. And it was one of these countless times talking with family and friends where I was discussing ghost towns with my brother. My older brother, Doug, started asking me if I ever heard of Powder Town. Now, I will tell you that just the name alone strikes interest. At least it did for me. And I'm one that when I put together my research and I start exploring, I end up coming upon a wormhole. And I start taking that 
and that wormhole leads me down a different path. It opens up a whole new set of stories, which you'll see here in a second. So I'm intrigued. And I say to Doug, no, actually, I haven't heard of Powdertown. Where is it? What is it? Now, you mentioned powder. What type of powder are we talking about? Is this even a real name or is this some legend passed down generation to generation? So Doug answers back with a chuckle. (laughs) No, no, it's a real place. Sue, which happens to be his wife and naturally my sister-in-law, Sue was telling me about this old company town down by where she grew up in Keokuk, Iowa. She told me stories of when she was a kid. Her dad would take her around the area to fish the lake by the park and there are still standing buildings or at least there were when she was younger that marked the town it was some explosive powder plant or something he says mysteriously and the town housed the workers and when it shut down in the 40s or somewhere around that time the site was abandoned at this point in the conversation I can tell there is much more to the story so Digging a little further, I come upon one of those wormholes I mentioned above and decided to take it. Found myself transported back to the year of 1793 in Paris, France. Right in the height of the French Revolution in a period known as the Reign of Terror. A period where the French Revolutionary State allowed sanctioned violence and demonstrated this power with public executions. And they killed thousands of of anti-revolutionary suspects. And I put that in quotes. Suspects, because this quite frankly became just about one group trying to eliminate another group to remain in power and control. Basically, who can wipe out who first? Now listen, there's a lot more on this, but sticking to the story at hand, there was this growing sentiment that King Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette, were against the French people and against the revolution. The monarchy was abolished and both the king and the queen faced the death penalty by guillotine. Along comes a nobleman by the name of Pierre Dupont, who along with his son E.I. Dupont defended the crown, even to the point that they were among those who physically defended the king and queen from a mob that attacked them at the palace. They were arrested, found guilty, and they were also along the side of King Louis and Marie Antoinette and sentenced to death to fall victim to the guillotine themselves. But fate was not as kind to the king and queen. While DuPont was waiting execution, the reign of terror came to a dramatic end with the beheading of its murderous leader, Robespierre, and narrowly avoided his own death. So DuPont avoids all this. And just to paint a picture of just how violent a time this was, and how lucky DuPont was, it estimated that between 16,000 and 40,000 deaths were carried out, and this wasn't some big secret. In fact, it was a huge spectacle, where it became one popular entertainment event where there were large crowds gathered with vendors and listings of the names scheduled to die that day. And you might be listening to this right now saying, okay, so what does this have to do with a ghost town in Iowa And you're going to catch this connection to the ghost town, so bear with me. DuPont and his family navigate their way through the years of the French Revolution. They end up migrating to the U.S. in 1801, where his son, E.I. DuPont, who studied chemistry, founded a gunpowder manufacturing plant along the Brandywine River in Delaware. And so, obviously, if you're thinking about the name DuPont, 
what comes to mind. You think of the company today, the DuPont company. There is more that needs to be told with the DuPonts and the story. But as you can imagine, nearly 90 years later, the DuPont family navigates itself along the explosive powder industry and finds itself building a powder plant in Iowa. More on this right after this brief message. Do you love history? Love ghost towns and abandoned places? Maybe you have a couple abandoned towns in mind or even have some stories you'd like to share. I'd love to hear from you. On this channel, we look at it as a full community. You might have a different angle on something or even know of a place that history seems to have forgotten. You can email me at midwestghosttown at gmail.com. That's midwestghosttown at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to become part of the community, you can simply follow along either on YouTube or wherever you receive your podcast. And as we like to say on this channel, let's keep history alive. So as you can see, this wormhole gets mighty big in a hurry. I start in Iowa, wind myself across the Atlantic, traveling back in history to the time of the French Revolution, and of course, make my way back to the U.S. And you might be asking, what does this have to do with anything about Powdertown? And my answer is simply, everything. See, the story of the DuPonts really is the one that is semi-overshadowed by violence and warfare, and you're going to see this connection right here. DuPont starts manufacturing gunpowder, and they see an opportunity rising. They are noticing that war and conquest are constantly at the doorstep, and there was a vast need for gunpowder. They begin manufacturing powder and start profiting on warfare, everything from the War of 1812, the Crimean War, the Civil War and smokeless powder in World War I and other products in World War II. But there was a growing need for something else. Blasting powder. Due to the rise of westward expansion and the creation of the railroad, there came a high demand for coal. Coal-powered steam engines for both locomotives and other to fuel the big machines of the coming Industrial Revolution. Coal was slowly becoming king. And this is where DuPont makes their way to Iowa. In 1886, DuPont had two of his agents, Elliot Rice and E.C. Meacham, request the company for increased blasting powder supply. The coal fields were expanding in the Midwest, but there was a higher concern for the company. Did it make sense to continue spending large amounts of money shipping the powder from Delaware out to the coal mining operations in the Midwest because it was costing time and money? And the company needed to make a decision. Now, around this time in 1887, Francis Gurney DuPont begins his study on the matter, and if it was even feasible for DuPont to build a new facility. And there were many factors to consider. Manufacturing cost, shipping cost, land cost, labor cost, abundance of water because everything was steam-powered, distance to nearby communities who might not get too excited about explosives nearby, and of course, last but not least, along these same lines, safety. Let's get into this product 
in the exact set of circumstances that we are dealing with. I went over the history of DuPont and wanted to point out a list of accidents and explosions that occurred both at the Brandywine plant and the Moore, Iowa location. But there were numerous accidents. In 1815, in the upper yard at the Brandywine plant in Delaware, nine men were killed when the powder mill blew up. 1819, 33 men and one woman killed when one of the building carrying old powder stored from the contracts in the War of 1812 exploded. Apparently, according to the stories, the one woman who was killed in this incident was killed by a stray bullet that went off. There were old ammunitions, I guess, stored in the building. She was passing by, walking with her baby, and she was struck. April 14th, 1847, 18 men were killed in a letter two days later on April 16th. There has been the saddest explosion since 1818. All our beloved brothers are safe, but the best men in our employ have perished. So as you can hear some of these stories, you can kind of get the understanding just about how dangerous this product was. But it was the mysterious explosion in Wilmington, Delaware that caught my attention. It was widely reported that at the time around the 1850s that DuPont would travel south through Wilmington to the Delaware River. That turned into the Delaware Bay to transport their powder by way of Atlantic. However, on May 31, 1854, there was an explosion of the wagons transporting the powder through Wilmington. Now listen to this description made by Lamont DuPont on the accident. 25 minutes past 10 o'clock. Three wagons blew up on 14th Street, Wilmington, by which five men lost their lives, namely John Keyes, Thomas Talley, and James Chambers, all drivers. William Falcon, a citizen, and Robert Henry, James Price's driver. This was the first accident we have ever had away from home. First, the middle wagon blew first. As being about 50 feet apart, the force of the explosion excavated three holes in the ground, the middle three feet deep and the others two feet deep, but the hind one not quite as deep as the other. The middle hole was like the section and margin about 15 feet long, whereas the other two were a full 40 feet long, deep at the end and shallow at the other. Nothing was found of the wagons, except the irons and the hubs of the wheels. Of these, four were found on one side of the road and eight on the other. John Keyes, who drove the front wagon, was thrown about 82 yards forward and landed on the steps of the McCambie's house without any clothes on him. Thomas Talley was never found except his arm and hand from the elbow down. Robert Chambers was thrown down near the race bank at right angles to the middle wagon. He was also stripped. The house of Bishop Lee, which stood 40 yards to the left of the hindmost wagon, had its front pulled out while the smaller buildings nearer were completely demolished. The horses, 14 in number, were instantaneously killed, except the leader mare of Key's team, which had its leg broken. All the tongue horses were cut in two. The heads of four quarters were not much injured, while in no instance could there be found any of the six hind horses. These were completely ground to shreds, although over 50 pounds of horse meat and fragments were thrown into Bishop Lee's house, after the front fell. Now this, of course, had a major backlash on the entire company. Wilmington 
was swift to ban any explosives from being transported through the city, and following suit were mass bannings of powder wagons from almost every city. The cause of the accident was never determined, but there was a wide speculation of everything from someone nearby smoking to a fire ember floating nearby and landing on one of the carts. But of one of the most darker stories was an accusation laid from DuPont that the accident was caused by some evil person as a man was seen mounting up on the tail of the nearby wagon a short time before the accident. 30 years later, the volatility of blasting powder still had the same risk being used in it and around Powdertown. And there was an obvious risk factor. So, let's get back to Powdertown and what's going on here. So, Elliot Rice, who we mentioned earlier, the DuPont agent from the Chicago, Illinois area, is told that DuPont found that a new powder mill and manufacturing plant was very feasible and to start scouting for locations. And by 1888, he had a special map devised of Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri, basically showing that a 160-mile radius around Keokuk, Iowa, there were 400,000 kegs of blasting powder used annually. Keokuk would be the natural spot for DuPont, especially within a short distance by rail for access to the Mississippi. So Rice went out, he began purchasing land starting with 160 acres from J.J. Durfee and several hundred acres from Judge Daniel Moore. Now it doesn't take too much to hear that word and you understand this is where the town name came from. DuPont did not want word being leaked out and Rice was essentially buying these in secret at Silent Partners. Rumors began to swirl and Keokuk began to just spread rumors and people didn't know what was going on. Over 700 some acres were being silently purchased and nobody knew anything about it. The local papers thought it could be for a new meatpacking operation, yet others thought maybe it could be for a railroad, and yet other rumors circled around the idea of it being for real estate investors. Nobody knew for sure and nobody expected DuPont, an explosive powder manufacturer. By March of 1890, the powder plant was finished and ready. And by April 17th, in 1890, just a short month later, the first powder was made in Moore, Iowa. And a decade later, by 1901, it became the largest blasting powder site in the U.S. And by 1940, was given the distinction of being the largest in the world. So Powdertown was eventually spread out over 1,100 acres with two company villages and about 50 homes. And within the town, they had several businesses, a post office, a church, a school, a general store, a full clubhouse for the workers that included a bowling alley, pool tables, dancing facilities, and a boarding house. The powder mill itself was made up of a complex of plants surrounding the village, a complete railroad line by the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, transport the powder, but completely made of brass rails to prevent sparks. Now more on this in a bit, because this is a biggie. It also had a wooden box factory for making the transportation boxes to ship the powder, a guardhouse, a shower building, a soda refinery, a charcoal pulverizing mill, sulfur refinery, 
because honestly, it took three main ingredients to make the blasting powder, soda, charcoal, and sulfur. So all those buildings were present. An office building, it also had 35 deer and approximately 400 sheep to hold down brush for fire prevention and risk management. More on Powdertown in a minute. Dan here. Just wanted to thank you for listening and following along. We have a great episode coming up next week. And it follows along the same line as Powdertown following the DuPont Company and tracing a story to a ghost town out in the eastern part of the United States. And following a tragic story of resilience, toughness, and patriotism, the story of the ghost town Canary Girls. Consider subscribing. Don't forget to follow along on X, formerly known as Twitter, under Daniel Klein, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as Midwest Ghost Town. And let's keep history alive. Okay, I just told a couple stories about the DuPont accidents, but according to the Brandywine Valley Oral History Project with the Hagley Museum, between 1802 and the Brandywine facility closing in 1921, there were 288 explosions, resulting in 228 deaths, with the largest two being the 1890 explosion, which was felt as far away as Philadelphia, and the second was the 1915 Packing House explosion, which killed 30. But the amazing thing about Powdertown was its relatively safer history compared to its parent company. Powdertown, from the research gathered, had seven deaths, in its 60-year history. 1902, Frank Schneider and Hingrid Erickson, both men were found 500 feet away in some trees. The explosion was huge, that it could be felt in Burlington, Iowa, which was 37 miles away. There was three more that were wounded in that explosion. In 1930, John Hedden. 1939, Allie Brisby. Another one in 1939, Charles uh, Christ. In 1945, Bert Leake and Perry Wright, which were the last two at that location. It was dangerous working in a powder mill. The powder was highly flammable and explosive, and beyond the stories of explosive accidents mentioned, there were attempted safeguards put in place at Powdertown to try and reduce some of the risk. Now, I mentioned one earlier in terms of the rails being made of brass. That way they wouldn't create sparks. However, there was also a guard shack out front that the workers had to check into before reporting to work. There were some basic safety rules. Number one, and this is going to hopefully sound obvious, no smoking. Now, this sounds obvious, but it would only take one guy one time not taking it seriously and lighting up to put this rule to shame. They'd be checked for any matches or lighting devices at that guard building. Number two. They had special shoes that had to be worn for the job. The shoes had no metal because they didn't want to cause any sparks. They would be checked at the same guard building just to make sure they had no metal on them. Number three, they had special overalls made for them to wear. These also did not have metal and were safeguards put in place by DuPont. After DuPont made the decision to close Powdertown, In 1951, the company came in and they tore down 67 of its buildings. The company had a policy that nobody was allowed to use a contaminated building. 
So most of those buildings were burned down. Now, this is where I pause for a moment because I pondered this. And if you're thinking about what I was just talking about, the dangers of having blasting powder, and I was hearing about them burning down the buildings, all I could think of was, hmm, that seems like a disaster waiting to happen. And sure, this was a real issue. As they were doing this, which I call Operation Destroy, was that most of the buildings were covered and coated with powder. They had to burn down the buildings and yet not blow themselves up or start themselves on fire during the process. So what they did is they hosed down the buildings first, then they burned them. From the history of the DuPont explosive and gunpowder legacy to the now ghost town and blasting powder manufacturer in Powdertown, Moore, Iowa. The history is deep. And if you are careful, you can still see parts of Powdertown today, which is located about five miles north of Keokuk and off of 218. Take a visit to Chatfield Park and Lake Chatfield and you are close. The grounds where Powdertown stood are on private property. So make sure if you are exploring or visiting to follow the ghost towning creed, seek and obtain permission and always be safe. The stories of the past are alive and well, and it's no different in Powdertown and Moore, Iowa. Stories can be found in nearby Keokuk from both locals and historical societies. Powdertown. Let's keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town.